Okay, I'm glad you're here. <clears throat> we're going to uh, we're going to discuss uh, a uh, a very big topic, and uh, that that's sort of the what it means to be in, in, in exile or how to survive exile. And uh, we're going to um, draw from from Yaakov Avinu, from, from, from Jacob's uh, journey and his climactic uh, confrontation with his brother who wants to kill him, Esav. And this is dealing on so many different levels. Um, and then I, I want to try to give some advice as to uh, how we can survive um, as a people, individually, collectively, and everything like this. Um, so, so let's just set the scene. Uh, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, our father, is has just left the house of Lovin. And Lovin was his father-in-law, and Jacob has had the, he's married uh, Lovin's uh, children, uh, there's there's um, Rachel and Leah and, and Bilhah and Zilpah and, and and he's had the the twelve tribes. Well, Benjamin at this point hasn't been born yet, but he's he's about to be born. So you have the entire building of the of the family of Israel has just taken place over these years in the house of Lovin, and of course Lovin has tried to stop Jacob and undermine him in at every uh, with every opportunity. And somehow, uh, Jacob escapes uh, intact. His, his, his Torah is intact, his um, finances are intact, and his body is intact. He hasn't been you know, bodily injured. Um, and he's, he's managed to disentangle himself. And now, he's about to go home. And you think that, okay, he's just gotten past this, like, epic struggle with Lovin. And by the way, um, mystically speaking, we, we, Lovin doesn't get a lot of press, but Lovin is like really super bad. He's super, super bad. And they, Kabbalistically, we say that he was reincarnated into Bilaam, who tried to curse and wipe out the entire Jewish people. So that's, his, that's where he goes. So that's where this energy goes into Bilaam. Bilaam was the one, the advisor to Paro, who advised Paro to kill all the Jewish children. So throwing them into the Nile and, and all the rest. So all that is from Bilaam, okay, his advice. And before, that's who Levin becomes, before they trace back, the mystical sources trace back his energy, his, his life force to the snake in the Garden of Eden. So, so Levin is really a heavy-duty bad guy, okay? And, and somehow Yaakov has escaped his, his, his influence and his, his home, okay? But more than that, there is one of the uh, great um, gamaches in the whole Torah is right here, which is that it, 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 when, well, I'm getting ahead of myself slightly, but Yaakov is now, you think, okay, now he's done with the worst, but now in journeying home, he's got to face Esav, his brother, who, when last we checked in with him, has pledged to murder him. So it's really like, it, it's, 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 it's crazy, basically. It's crazy what the, the level of stress and, and, 
and utmost danger that Yaakov is going through. Now, remember, Yaakov has with him right now, he has the, 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 his 12 children who are going to become the 12 tribes who are going to become the entire family of Israel. So, so keep in mind that, that what he's holding is like the, the Petri dish, so to speak, with the DNA of, of like the entire future of the Jewish people right here. So it's, it, it just shows you that um, how high the stakes are that he's able to negotiate these confrontations successfully. Um, so, so he sends angels and, and to, to find out like what's going on with Esav. And he, he finds out that Esav is waiting for him because he thinks maybe it's been so many years. Maybe Esav is forgotten or now he forgives me or whatever it is. Um, and when does he find out that Esav is w- actually waiting for him with 400 soldiers. So this is, this is literally the worst news he can get, you know? And, and he sends these messengers, who Rashi, again, says were actually angels. And from, I, I, I heard that they were actually the angels formed from his own good deeds, which that in itself is like a very interesting idea. And in fact, the Jukovar Rebbe points out that the gematria of the word mitzvah equals malachim, which is interesting that because it says in Pirkei Avos that for every that for every good deed that you do, every mitzvah that you do, you create an angel. So interestingly, just that the word for mitzvah equals the word for malachim, which is actually in the plural. So your mitzvah are, each mitzvah is generating angels. So how we reconcile that, the, the main point is you see this connection between, and if you, if you want to know like, how does that work exactly? It's actually fairly straightforward. If you, I always try to think of this because I, I think this is a good example. If, if you imagine what it feels like to, to give someone a hug, like a, a heartfelt hug, you know you can actually feel the energy exuding from you or receiving energy when someone gives you like a very heartfelt hug. You can actually feel the energy. And every deed that you do, you actually put out life force into, into the world through this action. So, so what is an angel? It's, it's, a, it's a bundle of energy that has this life force. So if you think about it, it's actually fairly straightforward and I think fairly non-mystical. Just this idea that your mitzvahs, your deeds, especially when you do them with all of your heart, you create these packets of energy that we're, we're calling angels. But they have, a, they have their own metaphysics to them. Once you create them, they have their own sort of life force to them. And by the way, the opposite is true. When someone gets very angry or does something destructive, they're also emitting energy. And those things take on negative energy. You know, so those would be the opposite of angels. So, so these things are all, I think, fairly straightforward. And I don't think one has to be a quote-unquote believer to connect the dots on, on, on this. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless, um, however we're to understand it, Yaakov is sending these angels to Esav. 
And with this message that im lovan garti, that I've been living with lovin. Now garti, Rashi points out, garti is the gematria um, 613. <laughs> and so what he's communicating to Esav is, I want you to understand something. You think that you can defeat me. But I was just in the house of Lovin, who we established his bad guy credentials. I was just in the house of Lovin, and I kept all 613 commandments. So, you know, whatever, whoever you thought I was, think again. Think again, because you're dealing with someone, someone who you're not going to be able to defeat. So, so this is all hidden in the text, but it's all there. And again, I always think it's important to remind us that the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. So we're just unpacking levels of understanding that are all here and that we've been privileged to have many of these levels pointed out to us by our, our greatest sages. Now, now let's get to the confrontation itself. Because... Or rather, I want to get to the aftermath of the confrontation. But let me just, just say a couple of points very quickly. Because this is practical, even in, in our lives today. Which is that Yaakov uh, employs a three-pronged strategy. Which is to send gifts, to pray, and ultimately prepare to go to war. And the rabbis teach us that this is our strategy for all times, both as a nation and individually in our own lives. That if you are confronted with an adversary, that one should try to employ these three strategies, to give gifts, to pray, and if necessary, to go to war. Right? So, so this is true for all times. Um, and, uh, and so Yaakov Avinu sends these gifts, and it's wave after wave of these amazing flocks and flocks of all sorts of animals. And after one wave of gifts comes to Esau through these intermediaries, another wave of gifts come, another wave of gifts come. So by the time that Yaakov and Esau finally face each other, Esau has been sort of aroused to this place of compassion. And it's been very effective what's happened. And of course, I'm skipping over the climactic battle, but we'll get to it, God willing, in a little bit, where during the night, while these gifts are being sent, Yaakov wrestles with the, with the guardian angel of Esav, which is associated with the Yetzirah. So, so Yaakov has this wrestling match with an angel in the middle of the night and defeats him. So he actually, spiritually speaking, had defeated Esav, even before they confronted each other physically. So all of this is going on. It's one of the, you know, more epic, uh, you know, um, uh, accounts in the Torah. But what I want to get to really is this final, finally they have this meeting. And an amazing thing takes place. It says, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it for you, and we're going to zero in on, on, on one of the words, because in the 
there are dots over this word. And it's very rare in the Torah that you have dots over a word. So what's the word? The word is kiss. Vayishakehu. Um, and that's in uh, verse uh, 33. I'm sorry, chapter 33, verse 4. 33, 4. And here's how it reads. It says, Esav ran toward him, meaning Yaakov, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. Then they wept. Okay, so to, to read this, it sounds like, wow, these two brothers who were really against each other, or really Esav who was really against Yaakov, what an emotional, beautiful reconciliation. But the rabbis are saying, wait, wait a second, you know, we got to go a little bit deeper here, and we got to know really what's going on here, all right? So what is this idea that Esav embraced him, fell on his neck, kissed him, and wept? And why is the word kiss highlighted in, in this, okay? So now we have one of the more wild midrashim, filling in the behind-the-scenes story of what really took place. Okay? So it says that what happened was that Esav went to, when it says he kissed him, really what Esav was doing was he was going to bite his jugular vein and kill him. And a miracle was performed, and Jacob's neck turned to marble, and Esav sunk his teeth into this marble, and he broke his teeth, and he wept. So this kiss is not like a normal kiss. This was going for his jugular vein, and the weeping was not a weeping of emotion, about reconciliation, but the crying in pain over his broken teeth. Okay. So, like I say, this is like, Rashi brings this, by the way, and it's an old medrash, so this is, all right, well, wow, where are they getting this from? It, it seems like, you know, just to read the story, it sounds like a very nice story. Everyone's getting along so beautifully. Now, all of a sudden, you've got people trying to murder each other. So again, this word kiss is highlighted because that's really the sinking of the teeth into the neck. So that's like, okay. Now, so what really took place? That's the question. What really took place? Was it a kiss? Was it a, a this miraculous episode where a, a, a murder almost took place but didn't take place? But then if you want to say that, that it really was like this, like the Medrash is saying, that that's actually what happened, then how do we understand the, the next part of the story, where they continue to talk and get along, and then Yaakov even offers to escort Jacob's um, camp, right? Which we'll get to in a moment, because that was a very tricky kind of thing, because the escorting of the camp was sort of like this kind of like seemingly, you know, like in the mafia, 
one of their famous rackets, it's, it's called a protection racket. And what they do is, if you have a business in a mafia neighborhood that's doing well, they walk up into your store, they look around, they see you're doing a good business, they put their arm around you and they say, congratulations, we're partners now. And you're like, what? What do you mean we're partners? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 we're partners and we're now going to um, be protecting you now. Protecting me from who? Oh, from us. <laughs> so you'll now give us X percent of all of your money and we'll make sure that you're safe. From who? From us. Oh, okay. <laughs> and this has been going on for probably much of history. What that, and it's called a protection racket. Completely against the law, you know. So, so this, this offer of help, again, looks very um, generous. Esav says, you know, I'll, I'm going to send my soldiers with you and guard you. <laughs> and Jacob has to very diplomatically extricate himself from, from this sort of like offer of help but while still remaining on good terms. But we're going to get more into that in a bit. But anyway... The point is, from this you see that there seemed to still be, at least superficially, a level of camaraderie between them. So how do you have any... How, how does the story progress where a person has broken bloody teeth and another person has a marble neck? Like, how, how does any normal proceedings happen after that if, that, if, if that actually happened, right? So again, we have to understand this. Now again, let's just have a quick you know, overview of what the Agadita in the Torah mean. These are the, the um, more wild uh, uh, explanations of what's actually going on that the rabbis give. Now, there are different viewpoints, but the main thing to understand, and I'll, I'll clarify this in a moment, but the main thing to understand is that all Midrashim, including the one I just told you, are 100% true. The question is, on what level are they true? Are, did, did that event actually happen? I'm sure there will be people who tell you that actually happened, 100%. And that's fine. If it happened, it happened. I have no problem with that. But it may not have happened. But still, it's true. So what does it mean if it didn't happen, it's true? Because what the rabbis are trying to explain through this metaphor, if you will, through this piece of agadita, is a truth, which is 100% true. But they're just using this language to, ex to communicate this truth. Aha. So now, now, so either way it's true. Either it actually happened and it's true, or there is a truth in it and you have to figure out why they put it in these terms to discover this truth. Okay. Now, now let's get into it. And again, why this word kiss? Because that's the word that the rabbis single out and that has the word that has dots over it. So, so I want to explain in the following way. You see, and this is an attempt also to, to answer the question of what actually took place on that field so many years ago. You see what it is, is that the Jewish people, and remember, Yaakov's name is Yisrael, Israel. He just got that name the, the night before this battle. That's what the angel names him. He says, your name is Israel. Okay, so 
So Yaakov is Israel. That is the nation of Israel right now as an individual. Um, Israel has been outside its homeland for much of its existence and somehow has survived. And the host nation, host nations that we've sort of um, uh, dwelled in, dwelled with, have had different attitudes toward us. And one, one attempt has been the, unfortunately, um, the very aggressive attempt to just try to eradicate us through pogroms and genocide and things like this. Just, just get rid of them, right? That's, that's, that's one form. Another has been like, okay, you, you can live and everything like that, but we just want you to believe everything that we believe. Or you can, as Reb Shlomo would put it, that the, the Yitzhahara, the negative force, comes to a person and says, listen, you want to do it, do it all. Just don't do it with all of your heart. Right? So that's, that's another form. And now there's a, still another form. And that's what I think is being communicated over here which is a form of total acceptance. But sometimes it's total acceptance with an agenda. And so it manifests itself as love and tolerance and acceptance. But on a deeper spiritual level, it's another form of trying to eradicate through assimilation and loss of identity. You know, one of the interesting stories. My father told me this. There was, believe it or not, a, a fairly large Jewish community in China, of all places. And, and because the Chinese had no anti-Semitism, right, at this period of history anyway, there was no anti-Semitism. All of the people in that community intermarried with Chinese. The Chinese and the, the community literally disappeared. And you can see, like, you can see records of this. If you go on the internet, something like, I'm mispronouncing this, but it's something like Kaifeng, something like this. That was the name of the city. You can see, like, um, like a Jewish shul in, in classic Chinese-Asian architecture. It's fascinating, because you look at it, and you wouldn't, in a thousand years, you wouldn't think that that's actually a, a, a Jewish building. In a million years, you never think it, and, but there it was. But um, so there's, it's been documented. There's all sorts of documentation about this community. And it zip, completely disappeared because of the lack of anti-Semitism, ironically. So, so we have to look more into how then do you survive? Because, you see, seemingly, we want to live in a place that doesn't have any anti-Semitism. Right? We don't want to be persecuted. But you see, then the ball gets thrown back into our court. And then for you to remain who you are without at the outside society enforcing it means that you have to be proactive and initiate your own identity. But in order to do that, that requires education. Because if you don't know that you don't know, 
then you disappear. Now, I'll give you a, 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 an example of this that I, I think is a very interesting example, very compelling. It says that when Moshe came to take the Jews out of Egypt, that we were on the 49th level of impurity. Now, there are only 50 levels up, going up toward Kedusha, toward holiness, and 50 levels going down. So we were on the 49th level, and it says that if Moshe had arrived a moment later, we would have disappeared forever. Now, I heard one account, I, I don't have a source for this, but I heard one account, which I think is fascinating, and that is, there is no 50th level of, of, of impurity. Because if you get to this place of the idea of a 50th level of impurity, then you disappear completely, and you can never disappear completely. Right? In other words, you, you're still around, and you still have this, what we call the pintalayid, this sort of like holy pilot light inside of you that can never be squashed. So what is this idea of a 50th level of impurity? Maybe it actually doesn't exist. But seemingly it does. So how can it exist and not exist? <laughs> How can you have this idea that you're lost forever if you can never be lost forever? Right? So I want to try to reconcile these two things right now. So the explanation that I heard, I think, answers this nicely, which is that the reason why if Moshe Rabbeinu had, if Moses had shown up a moment later, they never would have been able to get out because they would have sunk to the 50th level, means the following. They would have, we Jews would have forgotten that we were, that we needed to be saved from anything. We would have forgotten that there was, that there was anything else other than what we had. We would have been so mired into our slave consciousness that we wouldn't have realized or accepted that there was any other alternative. So while we still could have been saved, meaning we were still, meaning there is no real 50th level, we still could have been saved. Nonetheless, we would have been so lost that we wouldn't have any idea that there was anything to be saved from. So that's now simultaneously the 49th level and the 50th level. Because it's the idea that we would have been lost forever, even while still understanding that one can never be lost forever. So, it's really important, it's beyond important to understand that, that we have a mission and that we're here to accomplish something. And again, I want to give you another historical precedent for this, which is the story of Purim. We just did Pesach. Now let's do Purim, okay? So, after the first temple was destroyed, the Jews went to, um, went to you know, the Ahasuerus kingdom. I guess that's, uh, you know, I guess that's Persia. Um, or maybe it's Babylonia. I guess it's Babylonia. Well, whatever it is. 
um, we went into exile, and uh, and we were supposed to be there for 70 years and then return. That was what the prophet said. And Ahasuerus throws this huge party. He becomes king, and he throws this huge party, and he invites the Jews. And they say that there was even kosher food there. And the Jews came to this party, and the rabbis say in Gomorrah Megillah that because we participated in this feast, that, that Haman, spiritually speaking, was empowered to eradicate the entire Jewish people. So you have to ask yourself the following question. Any punishment has to fit the crime. So because we were invited to the king's palace and his party, and there was even kosher food there, and we went there, somehow we were sentenced to death as a nation? That seems a little out of whack. You know, what was so terrible? So what was so terrible is the following. And I heard this first from Rabbi Ru, that, that what was at this party, the vessels, the kalim, from the Beis Hamikdash, from the, from the destroyed first holy temple. And what Ahasuerus was celebrating was the fact that the 70-year prophecy, the 70 years predicting that the Jewish people would return after 70 years, had now passed, and the Jewish people hadn't been saved. And so Ahasuerus was now wearing the garments of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest in the Holy Temple, with the vessels of the Holy Temple, and the Jewish people were participating in a celebration saying that you're never going back to Israel. So now, when you think of it that way, God says, well, look, you're never going back to Israel. You have come, become completely disconnected with your mission. So what do I need you for? So now you understand how this decree of extermination comes down for attending this party. Now it's all of a sudden balanced. Okay, now I understand the logic of it. Again, what I'm trying to explain and emphasize here, and we're going to get back to the kiss and Jacob and everything like this. What I'm trying to explain here is to show you the, the connection and how essential it is for us to remember our mission. In terms of our survival, we will not survive unless we understand our mission. Now, I just heard something interesting. There's a book that has, um, someone was just quoting it last night. Uh, it's, um, I don't know the name of the book, but it's, it's a collection of case studies of what makes a happy family. Okay? And one of the, um, one of the uh, studies uh, demonstrated that if, if your family knows its story, that's one of the things that makes it a happy family. In other words, how did your grandparents come to this country or your parents come to this country or you come to this country and, and how did your parents meet or how did your grandparents meet or your, and, and you're just, your, fam, your personal family's narrative, if that gets handed over to your children or if you know it yourself, that this shapes your consciousness and somehow this leads and enhances your happiness and the family's happiness if they know their story. So, 
So again, because this narrative is part and parcel with understanding who you are and what your mission is. But we're going to build on this further in a moment. So, so again, Asaph goes to kiss, and that's the key word, right? Because that's the word with the dots over it. Asaph goes to kiss Yaakov, but the rabbis say, no, that kiss was actually a bite. He wanted to kill him. He wanted to murder him. And yet afterwards, it seems like they're getting along fine right afterwards. So what happened exactly? Was it a real kiss? There's an opinion that it was just a, a one-time temporary kiss. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rashi brings him, says, no, really it's a halacha that Esav hates Yaakov. But at this moment, Esav's compassion was aroused and it was a real kiss. But just as a one-time event. Okay, so this is another opinion. This is another opinion. But again, we've got this idea that somehow there was a level of normalcy between them as evidenced by what happened afterwards with the offer to protect him and everything like this. So what was that kiss? So again, different countries have taken different strategies with the Jewish people. Some have been to try to wipe us out. Right? But then there's also, like we have in the American exile, this total level of acceptance. You want to be Jewish? Be Jewish. You don't want to be Jewish? Don't be Jewish. Whatever. And this is actually really dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Because again, it puts the ball in our court. And in the place of Jewish ignorance, and there's a plague of Jewish ignorance on the world today, a plague of Jewish ignorance, where people don't know the first thing about what the Torah is. It's horrendous. It's horrendous. The depth of ignorance, and even among, there's so many smart Jews. We can take so much pride in the level of intellect of our people. If you see how many smart people are walking around with zero knowledge, it makes it even more, like, heartbreaking. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say with my own ears, I heard him say that in this day and age, to be superficial is a criminal offense. A criminal offense to be superficial. So, so now, I saw a commentary in the, in the art scroll on this. Something very beautiful. It said, why is it that this angel, right? This really the sort of the embodiment of, of negativity of evil attacked Yaakov. Why didn't he attack Avraham? Although, by the way, just as a PS, you do have an account where on the way Avraham going to the Akedah, the, the, the binding of Isaac, that he does have this encounter with the Satan, but that aside, it wasn't. A, that was more of a conversation. <laughs> it wasn't like, <laughs> although he put up rivers in front of him, that he, he put up obstacles. But it wasn't. It wasn't an actual. Okay, let's roll up our sleeves and duke this out, 
right? Yaakov had, okay, this is actually a wrestling match. Okay, now it's getting physical, you know? So, so and, and Yitzchak doesn't have this. So why just Yaakov? Why, did, why, why was Yaakov targeted in this way for this direct confrontation? And so on the subject that we've been developing right now, it said that Yaakov represents Torah. Okay, because we say Titen Emet Liyakov. Emet, and we say Torah to Emet. Emet means truth. So, the, so, so truth was given to Yaakov. Also to Avram and Yitzchak, but, but in a much more hardcore, solidified, integrated way as we were learning last week. So, because Yaakov is in the, the culmination and the integration of Avram and Yitzchak. But they all had the Torah. But nonetheless, Yaakov is, is, is sort of uh, stamped with this seal of truth and um, embodies it. Um, and so, so, so the Chovetz Chaim says the following, amazing thing. It says that the, the Yetzirah, the, 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 these forces of negativity, they don't care if a Jew prays or gives charity just as long as as he doesn't study Torah. And since Yaakov is the embodiment of Torah, that's why the Yetzahara attacked him directly to uproot and undermine Torah study among the Jewish people. And you see that, you know, there's so many, there's so many good Jews who are doing, you know, not keeping Shabbos, not keeping kosher, not doing so many of the essential mitzvot, but they're, they're really super good people. So what are they lacking? What are they lacking? And the answer is, to a large extent, Torah study, actual Torah study, because that's the transformative mitzvah, which allows a person's consciousness to be shaped, which allows us to understand our mission and our purpose. Because what did we just say? That historically speaking, what did we say in Egypt? If Moshe had shown up a moment later, we couldn't be saved. Why? Because we didn't know that there was anything to be saved from. We would have forgotten who we were. What was the whole idea by the Purim story? That we attended the party, the party that's celebrating that you're never going back to Israel? Clearly we lost touch with our purpose at this point. Why is there so much assimilation? So many people disappearing when all these people are better than good people. They're wonderful people. Why? Forgetting that we have a job to do. So now, let's look into the dynamics of of how this special Yetzirah of the kiss, this, this kiss of death, if you will, works. You see, and let's just tie up this whole kiss idea before we go into this next thought, which is going to be a continuation of it. You see, I think, I would like to suggest the following as to what actually happened on that field when they met and, and he kissed him. I think it was a real kiss. I, I don't think that, um, that in reality, um, at least in the physical reality of this dimension, I don't think that Yaakov's neck turned to marble. And I don't think that 
Esav broke his teeth. Okay? I think all that is true, as I said. But I'm going to try to explain why the neck turned to marble, and, and I'm going to ex- try to explain all of this in a moment. But, but what I think it was, was, was that it was a real kiss, but it was a kiss with either a conscious or an unconscious agenda. And that Esav wanted to draw Yaakov in with love, either consciously or unconsciously, in order to co-opt him and to cause him to disappear. And that's this idea. Now you understand the depth of the rabbis, according to this understanding anyway, because what was a, what was a real kiss in actuality really was an act of murder. Because through that real kiss, he was trying to draw him in and kill him off that way. If you, you know, if you, there's an expression, killing someone with kindness. And you see, it's, so how do we, how do we, how do we guard against it? That's the question. How do we guard against it? And what is this idea of the iron neck, right? The marble neck, whatever it was. What is, what is, the, what is the idea of this? So I want to explain the following, okay? Uh, this is my explanation, but to me it makes sense. You see, the neck in Torah um, means, um, the neck means the base of Migdash. And we, we have a, a, examples of this. The, the best example is, is uh, when Yosef, and this is coming up in the weeks ahead, when Yosef reconciles with his brothers, it says that with Benjamin, who remember they, they were full brothers because they both are from Rachel. They're, they're the only two children of Rachel. So that's a, an especially wonderful reunion you know, with all the brothers, but especially with Binyamin, right? So, so, so it says that they cried on each other's necks. And if you look at the Rashi there, it says that they were mourning the Beis HaMikdash and the Mishkan in Shiloh. Because the Mishkan in Shiloh was in Yosef's territory, and the Beis HaMikdash was in Binyamin's territory. So they were both crying over the Beis HaMikdash, that's what the neck means. That's if you look in the Rashi. That's what it says. So why? What's the? Why is the neck the base of Migdash? That sounds strange, right? But again, if you just give it a moment's thought, it makes perfect sense. The neck connects the head and the body. What is the base of Migdash? It connects heaven and earth. Right? Your body—that's the earth. Your head—that's the heavens, because it's. The soul resides in the brain, says the Shem Mishul. And this is the place from where you can, you know, understand metaphysically what's going on in, 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 in all the worlds. So the head is the heavens. The, 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 the body is the earth. And the neck is the connection between heaven and earth, just like the Beis HaMikdash is the connection between heaven and earth. 
because the prayers of earth go up through the base of Migdash into heaven. So isn't it interesting if what we're talking about is Esav trying to lure Yaakov in through this kiss of death of assimilation, right? Isn't it interesting that the rabbis phrased it that it didn't work because Yaakov's neck was unbreakable? Isn't that interesting? The idea being that Yaakov had such a strong vision of the connection between heaven and earth, had such clarity as to not just this world, the earth, but how it evolves in the heavens, and not just what you can see, but what you can't see. He had a vision of what we're supposed to do and where we are and what we are. That's what it means that his neck was unbreakable. That this truth that Yaakov had, this understanding between the connection between earth and heaven, which is a vision. Because if you, when I say a vision, I mean a sense, a greater sense of purpose, a deeper understanding of what we're supposed to do. Do you know how many people are wandering around in their bodies, in this physical plane that we're in right now, thinking that this is all there is? And then they think, well, if this is all there is, then I, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, right? Which actually makes a lot of sense. If this, in fact, is all there is, why not? Why not? But this is the smallest part of what there is. This is the smallest, 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 smallest part of what there is. And we live forever. And we live forever with the consequences of the choices that we make while we're here. And the period of time of while we're here is like this compared to the rest of our existence. So when you begin to understand the enormity of the vision of what it means to really understand the connection between heaven and earth, between what it means to be in a body for a short period of time and the eternity of the soul and what we can accomplish here, the great amazing things we can accomplish here. Remember, share with you again one of my favorite teachings that I heard from a friend. After 120, after our lives, we'll go up to heaven and we'll get the answer to all of our questions, but we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Here, right now, we don't have all the answers to all of our questions, but we can do something about it. So, so this is this is how Jacob survived. This is how, on one level, the rabbis are telling us that we can survive through the exiles and how we can survive the kiss. Because you see, when the host nation just gives you a kiss, just says, you want to be Jewish, be Jewish. You don't want to be Jewish, don't be Jewish. You better have an iron neck. You better have a neck, you better have a very strong connection between your body and your soul, between your sense of heaven and earth, about what it is that we're doing here, about having a vision and a macro understanding of what reality is all about. Otherwise, forget it. The teeth are going to sink in and you're gone. You're gone. So I heard about a dynamic 
just to kind of further try to explain a little bit more just the difficulty of all this, of maintaining identity in an environment that really doesn't care, basically. Rabbi Green explained that there's something, a dynamic called script anti-script. See, think of a, a parent and a child. And think of a rebellious parent, a, a rebellious child and a parent. And think about how the rebellious child wants very much to do its own thing. And it's not going to listen to you. It's going to make its decisions and do its own thing. So, so, um, so you tell it, you know, don't do this. And the child says, I'm going to do this. Right? Now, now there's something actually on a, on a level of logic comedic about that. And I, I, I'll tell you why. Because the child, in wanting to assert its independence and do the opposite of what the parents want it to do, and that will be the measure of its independence, is actually still functioning within the parent's paradigm. In other words, it is attaching itself to the parent completely. It's just doing not what the parent says. So, so it's not doing its own thing. It's, it's functioning very much in a direct relationship with the parent. It's just doing the opposite of the parent thinking, what the parent says. So in other words, the child has this illusion that it's got complete independence, but it's completely tied to the parent in this incredibly reactive dynamic. It's not independent at all. So, when the Jewish people are in a country, and the country says, you can't be Jewish, a lot of times you have, like throughout history, and I'm not lessening the, the Messiris Nefesh and, and, the, and the levels of Kedusha and martyrdom of, of, of the Jewish people, chas v'shalom, not, not one iota, but you have stories where people who weren't religious at all, all of a sudden a country says, if you don't convert, you have to die. And the person says, I'd rather die. And people have asked, how could it be that they reach such a high level of wanting to die when in their life they seemingly exhibited no, no connection? Well, the answer is the holiness of the soul. Okay. But on a more sort of like superficial dynamic, there's also the idea that in societies where um, there's opposition, we react to the opposition. We say, they say, you can't do this. We say, we will do this. So a lot of times, the Jewish people have remained more Jewish in very anti-Semitic environments. Now, I'll tell you something. Again, historically, you see something really, really I used to be really troubled by this, but you should just know this as part of your education. When Napoleon came along, Napoleon, you see, you know, all these sort of the intellectuals of the, of the non-Jewish world in Western Europe, around the time of the Enlightenment, grappled with what was called the Jewish problem. Like, what are we going to do with those Jews? <laughs> like, we can't, like, like, bless you, we can't figure out what to do with them. They are all in one area. And they're kind of like their own 
they're doing kind of their own thing and we can't figure them out and what are we going to do with them? So the answer usually was to put them in a ghetto, right? And, and uh, make us all live together and not allow us to own property or to vote or to, to uh, certainly not to intermarry or anything like this. And, you know, so we, we, were, we, were, we were put in a cage essentially for, for hundreds or thousands of years. Then Napoleon was really the leading light in this idea of saying, let's just give them citizenship. Let's allow them to vote. Let's make them citizens. Come on. Now, the other major country at the time of Napoleon's rise was Russia. Right? Because you have the famous battle between Napoleon and, and the Russians and the French army going up into the Russian winter and being defeated, like the Germans later. So, so the Russians were like, no, 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 no. Let the Jews stay where they are without any of their rights or anything like that, and that's what it's going to be. All right, so these were the two different philosophies warring at that point among the nations about the Jews. Now, here's the part that's troubling. The rabbis were offering their opinion on this. Now, you would think, again, I, having grown up in America and, and being used to sort of like Western society and liberal ways and everything like that, you would think, well, of course, all the rabbis of the day sided with Napoleon, right? Because that would have sort of, you know, lessened our isolation and poverty and all sorts of things like that, our quality of life would have gone up dramatically and everything like this. Our standard of living, I should say, not quality of life. Um, but a lot of the rabbis were like, no, 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 no. let's stay with the czar. <laughs> what? The anti-Semitic czar? Are you serious? That's who we want to win this battle between Russia and France? And their thinking was, it's the kiss of Asaf. Napoleon is the kiss of Asaph. What's going to happen is everyone's going to go out, they're going to get their property, they're going to get their citizenship, they're going to get their voting rights, they're going to convert to Christianity, <laughs> they're, going to, they're going to drop all these customs, they're going to disappear. So that, you talk about real politic, that, that's kind of like that's distressing. That's distressing to me anyway, because it suggests that you can... Do you really need opposition to force you to be who you are? If that's the case, that's kind of depressing, isn't it? Well, look at America today. Look at Europe today. Napoleon, so to speak, won. And the Rebbes who opposed Napoleon were right. But all of that is really just an introduction to where we are in this moment in Jewish history. 
You see, because what if you've got a scenario where we're free and we're completely turned on and motivated and passionate to do our mission? What if we've got the best of both worlds? What if we've got this idea that they're not attacking us, they're not trying to undermine us, they're giving us freedom to do our thing, and we're actually educated and we know what it is we're supposed to do. That's the unique period that we're living in right now. But in order to have that, you have to have an education. <laughs> you have to know. And that's why there's this incredible plague of ignorance right now, which is public enemy number one. That has to be reversed. People have to know who we are, what we're supposed to be doing. We have to know who we are. That's where it has to start. We don't need any PR campaigns like, kiss a Jew, right? right? You know, there used to be, there used to be, when I was growing up, there used to be t-shirts that was very popular, kiss me, I'm Irish. Do you remember that? It was like, it was interesting, but we, we, we need to figure out what it is to be Jewish and what it is to be Jewish in a society that doesn't care. But that, 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 indifferent, that indifference is actually the sharp edge of a sword. That's the weird thing. We experience it as fluffy indifference. <laughs> Here it is. Whoa, another pillow fight, you know? And then meanwhile, it's like, whoa, man. So, so now with this in mind, let's get to the next step. Now, you know, I told you that Yaakov, before he even confronted Esav, the night before he wrestled with his guardian angel, which is connected to the Yitzhahara, and he defeated him. So what was that victory? So he, he defeated him before he even faced him physically. But that, that facing him physically was obviously, it's not transacted yet un, until it's transacted in this realm. Meaning to say that the battle was not over yet. But nonetheless, there's this moment after he's defeated the angel of Asaph. And he says to him, what is your name? This is um, chapter 32, um, verse 28. Um, and Jacob says, Jacob. And he says back to him, no longer will your name be Jacob, but Israel. For you've striven, you wrestled with the divine and with man, and you've won. And now here's the point I want to say. This is uh, verse 30. Then Jacob inquired and he says, what's your name? And he says, why are you asking me my name? Now, now I don't know who said this, but I, I, I heard something very interesting, that that actually was his name. His name was, why are you asking me my name? And here again, we've got another clue for survival. Because... To survive the exile of the kiss, the ball again is in our court. We have to be proactive in terms of understanding who we are, what we're supposed to doing, what our mission is, and everything like that. 
And the last thing that the spiritual opponents of us want is for us to investigate these deeper questions. So that's why the force of negativity, which is wrestling and trying to defeat Jacob, his name is, why are you asking me my name? In other words, I want to know why I was born. I want to know what is this world. I want to know what is my purpose in this world. I want to know what do I have to accomplish. And if the answer to all those questions is, why are you asking? <laughs> it's like, put it off. Who cares? Have a beer. Watch some football. Take a walk. The Gap's having another sale. It's like, seriously, 80%, 40% off, 80% off the, today, you know, at the Gap, you know? Why, why are you asking me my name? In other words, negativity manifests itself in this way by trying to shut down further investigation. Why are you asking? Is its name. In other words, don't ask. Don't investigate. Don't bother. Why are you asking? Because once you begin asking, we have answers. I remember, I'll tell you something. One of my, the turning points in my, in my spiritual life I was walking in Westwood, I guess I was, I don't know, maybe 24. And I had a Jewish background, but not a, really a, 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 a real solid background in Torah learning and, and, and the, the bigger issues, you know. And I saw a, 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 just a flyer on a telephone pole or whatever it was, and it said, a class in Jewish mysticism. And I thought, I like Jewish mysticism, you know. So I attended it, and it was uh, taught by Schwartzy. Right, Rabbi Shlomo Schwartz, and uh, and I, I I loved it. It was at uh, the the Hillel uh, or no the Chabad house on Gailey, and I sat there and there were a bunch of people around a table and and he was teaching and he and he was saying so and he threw it off completely as an aside. So the purpose of the world is X, <laughs> and I was like wait, a and it was just like in the middle of you know whatever he was teaching and just and I was like. What? You know, that was extraordinary. It wasn't like, oh, I have to grapple for my whole life trying to figure out what the purpose of the world No, we know. We actually know what the purpose of the world is. Just ask. Right? And it's like, I loved that. I loved that. I remember sitting with someone very smart one time, and he was asking all these types of questions. And I was thinking, why do you feel as though you have to begin from scratch? Like, you have, like, do you not understand that we have 3,000 3, plus years of wisdom answering the deepest questions? That these questions actually have been answered? Like, get the answers and then you can go deeper and customize it for you and figure out, you know, some of your more personal questions. But the basics, we know. We know the structure of the universe. We know the structure of the heavens. We know the composition of the soul. We know what we're supposed to do in our lifetime. This is what the Torah and the mitzvot are. They're not suggestions. As much as I 
don't like to use this word, but sometimes it's appropriate. They're commandments. I remember, I'll tell you, one of the, another turning point in my life, I was lying on my bed in this uh, house in the Hollywood Hills that I was sharing with a bunch of comedy writers. We used to call it the Institute of Higher Leisure. (laughs) And we used to throw crazy parties and there was a swimming pool. We'd jump off the roof into the swimming pool and it was was an interesting uh, time. And um, rent limousines, go on sailing trips. It was was an interesting time. And... uh, I always believed that God gave us the Torah. And I remember when I was 13, or maybe I was younger, I don't know, I asked my sister, we were sitting at the dinner table in New York and uh, in the kitchen, and I said, what's the difference between Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox in terms of Judaism? And she said, well, the Orthodox believe that God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. And I was like, oh, that's me. You know, you can stop right there. (laughs) Right? Now, meanwhile, there was nothing orthodox about my observance or knowledge or anything like that. But I never had an issue with the idea that God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai. So, anyway, if you do, there's a wonderful book called Permission to Believe and Permission to Receive by Rabbi Kellerman. Short book, but just makes the case for the fact that we got the Torah at Mount Sinai for a uh, contemporary, intelligent person. But I remember lying on my bed and thinking, well, I believe that God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, and I'm, I guess, about 24 at this point, maybe 23. And I'm thinking, and then I, it's going to sound so obvious when you hear it, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, well, wait a second. If God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, and I believe that, that means I actually have to do it. (laughs) And again, even at an age where that, that shouldn't have been this massive realization, it hit me as a massive realization. And then... You know, ever since then, I've been trying my best. You know, you take one thing on at a time. You work with a rabbi or a rebbe who, or a friend who can advise you on how to proceed along the path. But, but that's what it is. And, and, so, and so everyone has a mission in America. Anyway, and I'd say most of the world today, the American ethos has pretty much taken over the entire world, and that is to be a success. And so what does it mean to be a success? And people will spend all day, 18 hours a day, working like crazy, neglecting their family, neglecting their health, to be a success. So the question is, if you walk up to someone and say, what is a success? (laughs) They'll go, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess they'll say, I guess to, they'll, they'll begin to answer the question, but I, then I imagine that they'll probably second-guess themselves as they're answering the question. 
you know, maybe they'll say, well, to have a lot of money, but then if they've got any soul at all, they'll probably then go, wait a second, really? Is that, is that, no, wait, wait, I need a little more time to figure out how do I define success? So again, here comes, here comes the, here comes the Yetzirah, the negative inclination, and Jacob says, what is your name? And it says back, why are you asking me my name? Because the last thing the Yetzirah wants us to do is to try to define success. Because what if the answer, what if, what if the definition of success is having time to spend with friends, <laughs> having time to learn, <laughs> you know, having, you know, a decent place to live, but to be able to help people. I always feel good when I help people. You know, I don't have to eat out in the fanciest restaurant every night. Every once in a while, I'd like to be able to have something nice, but, you know, I don't have to go crazy. Then all of a sudden you say, well, wait a second. That's very, that's, that's, I, that, those goals are actually achievable. <laughs> that's somehow very different from what I, in, in my lack of knowing, I've been pursuing with such gusto. You know, there's a very ironic story. I think it's by Tolstoy. Short story called How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's about someone who's amassing vast tracts of land. And in the, uh, in the very end, the sort of the kind of the uh, twilight zone, uh, although obviously Tolstoy predates the twilight zone, but the, the sort of the twilight zone twist at the end is um, six feet of dirt. That's all. That's all. <laughs> That's all, that's all the land a man needs, you know, meaning just a burial spot. Um, we're living in an age where the basics, just to know the basics is considered to be, you're like a scholar if you just know the basics. It's really strange, you know. Sometimes people tell me, oh, you know so much. I don't know anything. <laughs> it's depressing. It's completely depressing. <laughs> but that's the age of ignorance we're living in. So Rabbi Nachman said that there's going to come a time where someone who just keeps the mitzvahs is going to be considered a great tzaddik. Like, the, the, the normal level of Jew in, in my day, this is Rabbi Nachman talking, in, in, in not too long is going to be considered a great tzaddik. Now, can you imagine for a moment who the tzaddikim were? Right? Outrageous who the tzaddikim were. Outrageous. You know, when it says that, you know, we've been learning a little bit, last week we were doing the Magalia Mukos, just a little tastes of the Magalia Mukos, when it says on his tombstone that he was visited by Eliyahu on a regular basis. People learning with malachim, with angels, learning the way they learn the Torah in heaven. Okay. So I want to wrap it up with one, one last thought. 
and say one more thing before we just to introduce this which is one more strategy for survival in exile which is joy and simcha you must be able to take joy in your Torah avoda in your Torah practice it must be a source of joy it must be and that's why I, I, I daven at the happy minion, it's called. There's singing, there's dancing, there's actual joy. There's palpable joy there. You know, I was so happy. A, a friend of mine came, he had been gone for a few weeks, and he walked into the minion and it was going on, it was in full swing. And he looked at me and he said, it's good to be back in the land of the living. <laughs> and I just, that really touched me, you know, because I understood what he was saying. You see, because if your greatest source of joy is drugs, say, for instance, or liquor, or some, some, you know, form of addictive behavior, or self-destructive behavior, or just a full-on embrace of you know, fun, whatever that means. You know, we, we live in a society where fun is truth. I saw that written in some novel, and I was like, wow, that's so deep. That's true. That's, that fun is truth. And you know, I'll tell you something, and I'm, I do this all the time myself, listen for it. People will ask each other all the time, oh, what did you do, da-da-da-da-da? Was it fun? Did you have fun? It's like fun is somehow the measuring point of truth, of meaning. Meaning is to be found in fun. That's really bad. <laughs> and I mean, I write comedy for a living, so I'm not against fun, okay? I'm into fun. I like fun. I'm pro-fun. <laughs> but not, not, not that it's the entirety of the... Everything. I mean, for goodness sakes. Fun is truth? That's horrendous. That's horrendous. That society will not last. There's no way that that society endures if fun equals truth. You know, as an aside, there, there was a big movement um, which is uh, which is which is that no child should uh, lose in an activity, right? So everyone, if you, everyone would get a medal or a trophy, and it would say on it, if you didn't win, participant, right? So that way, like, because otherwise a child's self-esteem is, um, is compromised because that guy got the medal and I didn't get the medal, so he's a winner, so I'm a loser. And the logic is, and the logic actually is, is very compelling. The logic is that since I'm a loser, now I don't want to try anymore because I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of it. I, you know. So if you can keep that person in the game by improving their self-esteem, then, then they'll, they'll stay in it, I guess. But that's not the way society has been run for 
thousands of years in all cultures. There's the guy who gets the trophy and there's everyone else. And what's the philosophy behind that? The idea is, you know what? I lost this time, but next time I'm going to try harder and win. And so actually losing leads to a building up of character and overcoming adversity. And we know that's 98% of life is overcoming adversity, right? Like that great definition of success, the ability to go from failure to failure and keep on going and not give up, right? That's success. You know, so what happens when you deprive a child of that muscle? From the youngest time, a child is realizing that I don't have to try at all and I get a trophy for it. As opposed to I've got to redouble my efforts and understand that I'm not going to win every time also. So anyway, so, so, so this idea of joy is, is, is really, really important. And by the way, I, I, I saw a teaching relating to this that, that Miriam, um, that the women in the whole Exodus account from going from Egypt to Israel, you see that the women didn't participate in, in the sin of the golden calf or the sin of the spies. So what was the special merit of the women? So I heard this very interesting account answer, which is that the women are the only ones who it mentions danced at any point. So when the, when the sea split, it says that the women went off and they danced, and they danced with their tambourines. And what were they doing with tambourines? Because they knew a great salvation was coming. They believed so much, they already brought the musical instruments. And so, in other words, this level of joy that they had was actually a protection for them. Because if a person finds their greatest joy in connecting to the above, then they're able to resist the fake transcendence of some of the more addictive, alluring behaviors. You see, why does someone become a drug addict to begin with? There are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of reasons, but I'll, I'll, I'll just say one. There oftentimes is a real spiritual quality to, to people who fall into addiction. And drugs allow a person to experience transcendence. Sex also allows someone to experience this level of transcendence. Sometimes when you've got like, you buy a new car, it's like a great car. It's like, I'm more than I was before. Look at, look at this car. Again, through material things also, people experience this transcendence. People want transcendence. It's wired in us to want transcendence. Part of our soul is in our bodies. Part of our soul is outside of our bodies. We exist outside of our bodies as well. And we want to harness that transcendent connection to God. But we have to look for it in the right places. And joy allows us to access transcendence in the most beautiful way because now everything is in harmony. Heaven, earth, our relationship, God, our soul, the divine, everything through joy allows us to touch all of these fantastic points in the most healthy, harmonious, redemptive driving way.
Okay. So now, let's just finish. I want to just point out one gematria, which is an amazing gematria. Um, from, again, the, the Jukovar Rebbe, the Imre Noam. Um, and I mentioned to you, and we'll close with this, the idea that Esav, after this kiss, offers to escort Jacob with his troops and everything like that. And, you know, Jacob has to very diplomatically disentangle himself. You know, says, no, you know, we're going to, we're going to go at our own pace. He says, let my Lord go ahead of his servants. This is um, chapter 33, verse 14. Let my Lord go ahead of his servant. I will make my way at my slow pace according to the gate of the drove before me. That means the animals before me and the gate, the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. So this, this, this is a, um, a prophetic comment that, um, that, that, that Jacob is making. What does it mean until we meet at Seir? And we, we actually talk about this every day in the morning davening. At the end of the uh, Shir Shoyam, it says, <clears throat> the saviors will, will ascend Mount Sion to judge Esav's mountain, and the kingdom will be Hashem's. Then Hashem will be king over all the world. On that day, Hashem will be one, and his name will be one. Okay, so this idea that they're going to judge Esav's mountain, Esav again has three names in the Torah, Edom, Esav, and Seir. And actually just, I didn't mention it earlier, but just to talk about the level of fear, basically, that Jacob was experiencing at the beginning of this whole episode, after he's left Levin, who he's just managed to survive, on his way to confront Esav, the very first um, pasuk, the very first verse in this week's Parsha references all three names of Esav. Then Jacob sent angels ahead of him to Esav, his brother, to the land of Seir, the field of Edom. So, to my eyes, what this means is the whole power of Esav, like all three names of Esav are being named in this one verse. Right, that's what Jacob is about to confront. So just to show you the the, how scary an event it was, basically. So anyway, it says here that in the end of days, what I was just reading you a moment ago, in the end of days, God is going to judge Esav on, on, on Har Seir. It says on the, mountain of, uh, on the mountain of Edom, or on the mountain of Esav. But that's talking about Har Seir. So again, when, when Jacob is trying to extricate himself from Yaakov, um, when, when Yaakov is trying to extricate himself from Esav, he says, let me and my children go at our own pace and we're going to meet at the mountain of Seir. Meaning, we'll go through history doing our things separately, but we're going to meet at the end of days. We have an appointment at the end of days. Okay? So this idea that, so, so you see in this verse, it's talking about the whole history of the Jewish people. Right? Because it's Jacob at that moment talking about till he gets to Har Seir, the mountain of Seir, which is, correlates with the end of days. 
So this one verse is talking about the whole exile and travels of the Jewish people. Okay? Now this word, we're going to go, is esnahala. That's the word for we're, we're going to go. Okay? So the Jikova Rebbe says something unbelievable. He says, esnahala. Right? That's the verb of the travel from Jacob to the end of days, right? Esnahala is the gematria of the four exiles that the Jewish people are going to go through, which the, which the sages say are Bavel, Paras, Yavin, and Edom. Those four words, Bavel, Paras, Yavan, and Edom, which translates to Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Rome, those, those are the names of the four exiles. In Hebrew, those four words add up to esnahala. Meaning to say, just again, to just, we can blow our minds endlessly over the infinity of the Torah. This one word, the action verb in this verse, which is talking about Jacob's traveling throughout all of history, that one word correlates with the four exiles the Jewish people are going to go through till Mashiach comes. So we'll just wrap it up and, and just with a, uh, with a plea and an understanding that, that just because we live in a society that doesn't make laws against keeping Shabbos, or doesn't make laws against saying Shema, or make laws against, you know, standard practices, as it's happened in, in other countries, doesn't mean that we're not up against a real uh, challenge. And to overcome this challenge, a person has to have that iron neck. That's how you survive the kiss, which can really be the bite. Right? To understand your purpose, to understand that connection between heaven and earth. The challenge to find meaning and joy, to be able to define success. These are all the things that will allow us to make that journey with our Holy Father Yaakov and to get to Harsa'ir and to make that journey intact and to survive.